Let's start out by thanking our new Patreon members. But before we do, don't forget you can become a Patreon member by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or by scrolling down in our episode notes below, you can find more information. Okay, so to our first new Patreon this episode, thank you to Eric Gilbert Williams. He's in Canada and was a guest on our show, and you can hear more about his story in episode 104. Juliet Johnson in my hometown of Jacksonville, thank you for becoming a member. And if you need some SEO done for your website, she'd be the person to contact, so you can find more info again in the show notes. Pete and Sanika Gruker, right outside of Johannesburg in South Africa, thank you for joining the gold tier. And our last Patreon contributor, Corey and Russell Amons from Dallas, Texas, thank you for joining our Patreon campaign. Again, you can learn more about our members and their businesses by scrolling down to the episode notes below. So that puts us at 20 people in our Patreon campaign, which is 0.067% of the audience. Ouch. According to Patreon, we should have had around 300 people join our campaign by now. Double ouch. So I'm really curious if there's even 30,000 people listening. I'm starting to get the feeling there's more like 20 people. So what's stopping you from joining? I really am curious. So please write me an email and let me know at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. I'm a guy that knew nothing about real estate to starting and owning the largest property management company in Argentina, in one of the biggest cities in the world. Anything can be learned. Nothing is impossible, but you got to work hard. You got to work smart, but never think that you have to be a subject matter in anything or you can't be successful at it. I'm living proof that common sense and hard work is anything's possible. And I think a lot of the kind of the most successful companies today, I think the founders would give you that same advice. And I made kind of three life-changing decisions at one time. One was to quit my job where I had spent seven years. I was making a lot of money. I had three months of vacation a year. Two was I sold my house. And three, I moved to a foreign country. The biggest kind of hurdle I hear entrepreneurs and other companies that I'm starting and they'll say, well, I don't know how to do this or someone can do it better. And my feeling is you don't have to be an expert on anything and you can't teach someone else without doing it yourself. My name is Michael Coe. I'm 45 years old and I live here in San Diego, California. I also have an office in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I would consider myself kind of a serial entrepreneur. I've started several companies over the years, but I'm CEO and founder of Co-Investments, which is a sort of venture capital and consulting company. We primarily focus in residential real estate. And that's Co-K-O-H, right? Yes, K-O-H, which is my last name. You've been mainly focused in the real estate sector, right? Or like, how do you want to go about it? Because I know you and you were saying you're a serial entrepreneur. What I found most interesting is some of the real estate stuff. But you tell us kind of just broadly first, and then we can start off on how you got started and what you're doing. Yeah. So although I'm heavily involved in real estate right now, kind of my claim to fame is I bought more residential real estate in Buenos Aires, Argentina over the last decade, probably than anyone in the world. But Prior to moving to Buenos Aires, I didn't have any experience with real estate other than owning my own house. I was in a completely different field. I was in the healthcare field. I co-owned a medical company with two physicians. 
we were dealing with many wealthy executives and several years into the company, I saw a lot of these guys passing away early in life, you know, in their late fifties, early sixties. I kind of had a, oh crap type moment of asking myself, Mike, what would you do if your doctor told you had three years to live? And that kind of became my three years to live list, kind of my bucket list. And I asked myself, you had three years to live, what would you seriously do? So I got out a blank piece of paper, kind of formulated a list of what I would do. And I decided if I only had three years to live, I would want to go and travel and see the world. You know, at the time I had done some international travel, but not much. The occasional trip to Cancun or trip to London or Paris. So went into my two partners and I said, I want three months of vacation a year. And they came back and they said, Are you crazy? No. So I went to my office and I typed up a letter of resignation because I was really going to do this. And when they got it, they thought, geez, you're serious about this. And I said, yeah, I'm serious about this. Basically, I was kind of the rainmaker in the company. It began, they gave in and I had three months of vacation a year. I promised to be connected with emails while I was gone. I promised I wouldn't take more than a week off at a time. And kind of the kicker was I promised to grow the company at least 35% a year over the next three years, or I'd give back my equity. I made a list of about 75 cities around the world that I always wanted to visit, but I was too busy working. And the adventure began. One week I'd be in Monte Carlo. Two weeks later, I'd be in Havana, Cuba. Three weeks later, I'd be in Cali, Colombia. And I went all around the world and towards the end of the three years, I happened to be in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And Buenos Aires had a devastating financial collapse. I just happened to be down there at the time. And I kind of stumbled on a business idea. At the time, Buenos Aires, before the crash, was one of the most expensive cities in the world. It was more expensive than going to Paris to becoming the cheapest major city in the world overnight. I was down there one week out of every month, just fell in love with the city. And I noticed this arbitrage opportunity. Everything became cheap overnight, except for a five-star hotel room. Now, some of the other five-star hotels, they're still charging upwards of three, four, or $500 a night on a hotel room. I could spend over $2,000 a week staying down there. I just got kind of tired of staying in a small hotel room, so I went out. What year is this, just so we keep everything chronological? This is the end of 2001. Okay. There's no Airbnb at the time and there's no real tourism there. So there's no one renting out apartments. But I would look in the paper and I would see some people trying to rent out apartments. And it was just a horrible experience. I remember one time I sat in a chair. It broke. It literally, the legs were broke on it. You know, they kept my $400 security deposit. It was just all kinds of scams. You know, the mattresses were really not comfortable. It was just a pain. Things wouldn't work. And I had just spent three years traveling around the world, staying in five-star hotels and having a great experience. I just got tired of either the hotel option or there's no options for a luxury apartment rental. So I went out and I leased an empty apartment for two years. And I said, this is going to be my home away from home for one week out of the month. It wasn't a cheap option because I had to basically go out and furnish it. But when we were going at the lease signing, there was twenty-four, $25,000 in cash on the table. You have to keep in mind after the financial collapse, the banks all closed. There was a run on the banks and the locals couldn't take out more than $300 a month at a time. It was a very surreal situation. So, you know, you had several people that had their money in the bank, but they couldn't withdraw it. Real estate prices collapsed overnight. There was no trust or faith in the banking system. 
if you're renting an apartment, you had to prepay two years up front. At the lease signing, $24,000 on the table. I think the rent was two grand a month and I had to prepay two years at a time. And it said on it, no subletting. I'm only staying in it one week out of the month and it's empty three weeks out of the month. So I told the owner that, no, you know, I want to be able to at least let my friends and family stay in it. He said, no, no. And I said, oh, forget it. You know, I packed up the money. So he gave in. He said, okay, you can sub rent to people that you know. I signed a two-year lease. I furnished it really high end. I made a website called apartmentsba.com, BA for Buenos Aires. At the time, there was no competition. I told myself, rather than the cheap apartment, I'm going to compete against the Four Seasons, the LVR Palaces, the true luxury hotels in Buenos Aires. I got my first one, and it was just within a couple blocks of the Four Seasons, just right around the corner. I think at the time it was maybe $200 a night, and but it was not the 400 square feet suite. I think it was 1,300 square feet, two bedrooms, two and a half bathroom, pool on the roof, doorman. You know, so it was a real bargain at $200 a night. I put it online and you know, I was getting Google AdWords. There was no competition. I was completely floored at the response. I was almost at 100% occupancy. I just thought, gosh, something here. Someday I'm going to move to Buenos Aires when I'm an old man and I'm going to start a real estate company. Before we keep going any further, so this is kind of foreshadowing of your first company, like your major company that you ended up building, right? Yes, exactly. If you don't mind, I want to take it back to even before this because we'll stop right here and then come back to this part of the story because this is where I want to spend the majority of it. Pretty cool to have some guy who's going to South America who's from America buying real estate. But also the thing you started off the story with was kind of cool. We didn't get your age as far as when you decided. And just tell us about that old company, what you learned, and then how you got out of that company and started getting more into real estate. I graduated college and I moved down to Dallas, Texas. I graduated in 1995. My first job out of college, I was a physician recruiter. I recruited doctors for hospitals, groups, and clinics around the country. I was very, very successful at that. And there was a hospital there in town that they had an in-house recruiter, but I was recruiting a lot of doctors for them. One day, the doctor came to me and he said, hey, look, you know, I don't know how you're doing this, but I'm thinking about starting a company based on providing medical services to companies. He saw other executives in town flying to Cleveland to go to the Cleveland Clinic or Rochester to go to the Mayo Clinic to do these high-end executive physical exams, these all-day type physicals. He's just said, well, I think I can invest in the technology and the machinery and we can do them here in Dallas. I, I know there's a market for it because a lot of my patients, their companies are sending them to do these in other areas. But these executives were, they're killing two or three days because not only did the exam take all day, but they're flying to these other areas. He said, I think we can offer these here in Dallas and I need someone to market this to the companies. I thought this is a good idea. I knew that there was demand because there's already companies that were sending the rainmakers, so to speak, halfway across the country to do these. And that was probably a year out of college. I went over and started doing corporate medicine where I'd market medical services, like high-end five $10,000 physical exams to companies. And the idea was, you know, these are guys that brought in millions of dollars a year to their companies. We would do these high-end physicals. We call them executive physicals. Basically, my pitch was to companies like the Federal Reserve Bank, for example. They were one of our clients. Rather than sending your executives halfway across the country, we can do these here in town. We can do these here in Dallas. 
and we can do them for a lower price. But more importantly, your executives aren't going to lose two or three days doing these. We can do these over the course of several hours. It was really appealing to companies. I went to big companies, a lot of oil companies, Exxon and Hunt Oil and Federal Reserve Bank, Perot Systems, Ross Perot's company. I was working very, very hard there. I was working a lot of hours and my focus was kind of building my career and climbing the corporate ladder versus kind of enjoying life and traveling around the world and getting to know different places. You did that for what, like five or six years? Yeah. So I was there seven years, made partner, I think after about four years. How old were you at that point? At that point, I was about 26, I think, at the time. Although I was very young in my career, probably it was the equivalent of what a lot of people in their probably their mid-40s were doing. For all intent and purposes, I built up that company from scratch and got all the clients for it, basically ran that company. So I got a tremendous amount of business experience just starting and kind of running and building that company. Yeah. And was your experience mainly like trying to go and sell these people or were you doing a little bit of everything? You know, I was managing the operations of the company. My partners were two doctors and obviously they would see all the patients, but I was building up the marketing and clientele, customer service. We would contract out the nursing staff. My partners, they had already started the company prior to me coming on, but it really didn't go anywhere. They made a lot of mistakes. Like, for example, they would hire a lot of nurses. One of the first things I had to do, which was really tough as a 20-something-year-old coming in as an executive, is I had to fire a lot of people. I just said it doesn't make sense to have nurses on staff when we can contract that out and use like a nurse temps where you could go do flu shots on site. You don't need an employee for that. You can contract that out and just pay for a couple hours for each job. Are you still using old, outdated software at work? If you're still using software in your business that's more than a few years old, then I hate to break it to you, but you're falling behind your competition. And I mean way behind. Don't you think it'd be worth a few minutes of your time to at least compare your current software to what's available on the market? Well, Captera.com is here to the rescue. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 700,000 reviews of products from real users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software, everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software to make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com forward slash millionaire. Again, their service is free. So take a few minutes of your time just to check it out. That's captera.com forward slash millionaire. Captera, that's spelled C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A.com forward slash millionaire or simply check the link in your episode notes below. What did they see in you? Because you were so young at that point too. It seems like obviously to be that young and be able to kind of be in the medical space, right? Doing this at that age seems pretty unbelievable. So yeah, what did they see in you? Well, one of the things, like I said, so I was recruiting doctors for hospitals, groups, and clinics around the country. At the time, you know, people don't understand that hospitals pay for 
a doctor to recruit them to their city. A lot of desirable cities like Los Angeles or San Diego or Seattle, hospitals don't have to really pay any doctors to come there. The city is so desirable that there's people beating down, competing for that job. Well, many other places and cities around the United States that aren't desirable, like places in the middle of Louisiana or New Mexico in the middle of nowhere, it's very difficult for a community like that to recruit a physician. One of the things that I was very, very, very successful early on in my career when I started that is I would start talking to these hospitals and basically flying me out there. You had two different types of searches. You had a contingency search, which means that the hospitals wouldn't pay you anything up front. Obviously, if you just place a doctor with them, they'll pay you the $20,000 fee. Or you had something called a retained search where they might pay you $5,000 up front. And then once you pay a doctor, they'll pay you the rest of the $15,000. I would start talking to the hospital administrators where I would say, hey, look, how can I sell this opportunity to a physician or his wife? Because in many cases, you're not just selling the physician, you're selling their spouse. I can't sell this opportunity to them without coming and visiting your city. So rather than paying me the $5,000, I said, spend that money and fly me out there and you know, I'll stay in the budget eight hotel. But I just want to be able to meet you and meet people in your medical staff and see your community. You know, when I'm pitching this opportunity to the doctor and his spouse, I can be able to say, I've been there. Here's the good sides of the city, but here's the downsides. They said, wow, you know, that's the first time someone has said that. I think that was kind of the key to my success early on is just kind of following a common sense approach to doing business where a lot of people focus on just sales and I got to close this deal. But I kind of took it, went backwards of, How can I most effectively sell this opportunity to a physician and his family so that it's a win-win for everyone? Do you mind if we kind of fast forward? Because I think we got enough of the backstory now. Like I can just obviously tell, I think the listeners can, your kind of business acumen over those first five or six years, even though you're kind of young per se, you're saying you're working a lot and I can understand your kind of business mindset. And then how about we'll jump to that point when you did make that transition? Sure. Were you just getting burned out of just staying in Dallas or were just working too much? And what was the deal when you gave them that letter? I had a lot of good friends. You know, these clients became friends when I saw them passing away. When I had the three years to live moment, my life going across the world and seeing all these amazing cities Not that I didn't have a great life and a great job and I was making a lot of money, but as mentioned, I ended up in Buenos Aires. I wasn't thinking about a business in Buenos Aires, but I started looking at the numbers and the return on investment. I started looking at that one apartment that I subletted. If I bought that, at the time, the prices fell to about 150000 I would have netted something like $37,000 after all the expenses. I thought, this is the time to do it, not when I'm an old man. After a couple of months of having that one apartment, I went out and I subletted three more apartments just kind of to learn about the process. But also I was helping out a friend. I had met a girl and she was doing the check-in and checkouts. And after the financial crisis of 2001, you know, they call it the Coralito, one of the worst financial crashes in the world, she kind of needed a job. So I went out and I subletted three more apartments and those were full as well. And I was just learning about the business and seeing what people wanted. And she was completely full. But I thought this was the time to do it when real estate prices had artificially fallen 
overnight because of the bank run. And, you know, you can imagine if that happened in the United States, people would be blowing up banks. I mean, literally, if you couldn't take your money out of the bank. And I made kind of three life-changing decisions at one time. One was to quit my job where I had spent seven years. I was making a lot of money. I had three months of vacation a year. Two was I sold my house. And three, I moved to a foreign country. Any one of those in itself would have been a big decision, but I made all three of those at once. I sold my house, I cashed in a lot of my 401k, and I went down to Argentina. There were seven suitcases. That's what American Airlines at the time, the maximum number of bags that you could pay to take. Were they all filled with cash? No. Ironically, you do have to pay literal cash <laughs> at the property closings. But no, there were just personal effects and clothes and some electronics, believe it or not. The electronics down there are crazy expensive. I knew that I would spend several years down there and I went and I bought a couple apartments myself, but there's no leveraging down there. There's no mortgages or financing. Even today for foreigners, I bought three apartments, but I couldn't leverage. You know, I, I thought, how in the world am I going to add more properties? Because I was literally almost at a hundred percent occupancy because we didn't have any competition at the time. Remember our competition was five-star hotels, which were still expensive. My average property at the time, I think had maybe 800 to 1,000 square feet. We were half, we were about 150 to $200 a night. But I thought, how am I gonna grow this business? There's so much demand and we have no competition. I decided to set up an investment and consulting company and that's kind of where co-investments came in. Again, although I had no experience in real estate, I had letter of references from Ross Pro Jr., from the chief economist at the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas, which became a friend of mine and a client. And then people could see that I had a working model. I set up a consulting and investment company where my pitch was really simple. It's basically, I will do everything for you. You pay me a flat fee and I'll help you legally bring your money into Argentina. I'll set up your tax ID number, purchase the property for you. And then we'll turn around and we'll manage it. It was a very kind of no nonsense, common sense business plan. And I had already proved out the model. Well, if you don't mind, before you jump in there, I'm just wondering, because we like to jump into details here and especially something like this, just because there's so many jumps that you'd have to make. I mean, when you're bringing money in, like how are you keeping all their money in a US bank? And like, how are you getting money out? Because you talked about having that be an issue. Just tell us about the strategy and what you have to do when you're getting investment money from investors like you were and get it out. Argentina at the time, there was no trust in the banking system. Obviously, things eventually stabilized, but to this day, people don't really trust the banks there. There were still legal ways around that. You could set up accounts at investment banks, but Argentina had a law at the time that all funds that came into Argentina had to be converted to pesos. And then all the real estate in Buenos Aires, it's all priced in US dollars. It has been even before the crash. There's no free way to get money into Argentina. At the time of selling a property, any local, they would demand cash. They didn't want any transactions where their money was in any bank account for even a second. Literally to this day, most of the time when you're going to a property closing, you have to show up with $100 bills. Obviously, you don't have to carry that cash on the plane. You know, We would facilitate accounts and open accounts with investment banks there in Buenos Aires that would basically our clients would wire the funds to that investment bank, their account in New York, and then they would give the cash at closing. And I can send you pictures, Austin. It's very, very, very surreal. Over the course of 15 years, I've literally had my hands hundreds of millions of dollars in cash when we buy and sell properties for our clients. 
well, you said you're setting up the tax IDs and everything in Argentina to buy these. Like, how much money did you get to buy these other buildings? And just take us from maybe your first year or two when you had your first couple apartments, if you will, and then how you grew it like year by year. Because if you keep it chronological, I think it makes it a little bit easier for everyone to understand. I had learned the business and learned the laws. I built up a network of dependable bankers and accountants and lawyers and realtors. I kind of wrote my business plan and spent about a year on that. But I finally pulled the plug and decided to move down there in 2003. I ran the company. I had almost immediately upon moving down there, I set up the consulting and investment company. And then that quickly grew. We saw people that were just coming down. A lot of times tourists would come down and they would stay in one of my properties and they would be like, wow, you know, this is amazing. Again, keep in mind, Austin, there was no Airbnb at the time. What you see on Airbnb now, being able to book an apartment online, I started that concept pretty much before anyone out there was doing that. It was a completely new concept. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you had some websites that were out there, but nothing like you have today. And you said those people were finding you through AdWords. So were you like teaching yourself how to do all this? Because it's yes, kind of amazing to me how much you were working with the other company. And like, it sounds like you do work a shit ton, honestly. Oh, I did. I literally, Austin, I was working probably about 19 to 20 hours a day for the first couple of years. I kid you not. I probably slept about no more than four hours a day for the first couple of years. You got to keep in mind also, I wasn't fluent at the time. Now I'm fluent in Spanish. But at the time, other than taking Spanish in high school and some classes in college, which really kind of goofed off and wasn't serious about, I would take Spanish classes as well <laughs> in the morning. And But prior to moving down to Buenos Aires, Google AdWords was just getting started. Like you mentioned, I had to kind of train myself in that. It was much simpler because at the time, there was no one competing against you. You would just put in the words that you wanted to buy. You know, I would put in apartment rental Buenos Aires or believe it or not, I was paying for something like five cents per click or something like that. It was very, very, very cheap. And I think we were charging at the cheapest apartment was $150 a night. The ROI was just incredible. In dollar terms, I think I went down to Buenos Aires with half a million dollars. So we started out with the four that I was subletting and then the three that I had. We had seven apartments. By 2005, we probably already had 50 apartments that we bought. And I had a really simple rule for management. Although I was desperate for properties, I didn't want to work with any locals or their properties. And the reason for that is the locals were very, very difficult. When I started, I was working with some locals, but what I found is they were very unethical. If something didn't work, like the internet or the air conditioner broke down, and I would say, look, we have to refund this money or at least part of it. And they would say, no, 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 you know, we're not, I'm not going to refund anything. I had a really common sense approach where I'm not going to manage your property unless you hired my investment and consulting company to buy the property. We bought all of the properties that we manage. And I did that because we had full control as I knew the owners, I knew that they would do the right thing. And they kind of gave me full control to manage the property in the best way that I thought was fair for everyone, not only the rental guests, but also the property owner, because we had two separate groups of clients. One was a rental guest, and then one was the property owner. And we started kind of becoming well known. I think I've been in the New York Times three or four times since I started the company. They would start writing about me and my company. Lonely Planet would start listing us in their travel guides as the best properties to stay in, the best options. And then we had The Economist, which in the investment world was kind of like the Bible. The Economist did a story on me and my company. I believe this is in early 2005. They were talking about just 
the rate of return that the property owners were getting, the capital appreciation. I think a lot of my clients at the time, they were making 15% net returns on just the rental plus another 25 to 30% of capital appreciation on the value of the property going up. My pitch to the investors was capital appreciation is nice. That's icing on the cake. But the real test is the rate of return. How much are you making on this total investment? And the returns were astronomical. Plus, once the banking system stabilizes, the property prices are going to go back up. And that's exactly what happened. You have to remember, Austin, at the time, the euro was weaker than the dollar. To go to Paris, for example, with dollars, it was cheaper to go to Buenos Aires before the crash. And because of that reason, there was no tourism to Argentina. Argentina was pegged one-to-one with the dollar for about 10 years. But all of a sudden, after the crash, it got very, very, very cheap to go down there. I knew that tourism was going to explode down there. A steak and a glass of wine was something like $5 in 2003. I just knew, and it's a great city. Forget about it being cheap. I always tell people a mix of New York, Madrid and Paris combined. At the turn of the century, Argentina's GDP was ahead of Germany. I mean, that's how wealthy of a country it was. And that's reflected in the architecture there. It's just a beautiful city. Just to bring it back to business-wise, it seems like it's a whole nother step for you to try to figure out how to take these people's money and buy individual properties. Can you tell us how you're setting that up? I mean, are you getting any percentage of the property? Are you getting like a fee when you're setting up these different LLCs or corporations in America to come buy each of these properties? Because that almost seems like another headache on top of doing everything else. To be clear, doing business in Argentina was extremely difficult. I mean, you know, starting a startup in the United States or a first world country is tough enough, but the biggest problem down there is nothing works. And when I say nothing, I mean, you got to keep in mind, there's no banking system. There's no working judicial system, nothing like the Better Business Bureau, or you can't sue people and have small claims court. Starting a business down there is not exaggerating, probably a hundred times harder than it would be to start a business in the United States. Also, because the banking system didn't work, we had massive amounts of cash in our safe. <laughs> there's times there's over a million dollars in cash. We had the added worry of getting robbed or broken into, and which you know our office did twice get broken into. The great thing about investors is you can own a property under your own name without setting up a corporation in Argentina. The way I would structure this is everyone that bought, they would just hold title under their own name. The other thing is they could exit whenever they wanted. They could sell whenever they wanted. As far as fees, I had a very, very kind of easy business philosophy is we're going to charge you a flat fee. We were charging people $4,500 to hire us. And that would include one property purchase. We would take them completely through from start to finish buying a property. We would charge them a fee as well to furnish the property. We were buying so many properties that we had three interior designers that were furnishing properties. There was a time there when I was probably buying about five properties per week, believe it or not, for investors. This is for investors, but how about for you personally? Because I would think that you might want some like of the equity in the deal for each one you're setting up. No, that was the beauty of it for investors is no, we didn't take any of it. They would own the property free and clear. We wouldn't charge any other commissions or fees. But where we made our money was we charged a management fee. Mm-hmm. We charged 30% of any rentals. The business philosophy was simple is if I don't keep your property full, you know, I'm not going to make any money either. Right. We would charge them. I think at the time it was like $150 a month to pay all their bills and to manage the property plus 30% of gross rentals 
after The Economist did the story of me and my company, business exploded overnight. I probably had 50 calls the next day from people all over the world that wanted to buy properties. And that was probably the turning point. It got to the point where I wouldn't even talk to anyone about real estate. I had so many phone calls as we had a process where I said, we charge $400 for a consultation. It just eliminated kind of all the time wasters because we had a lot of people that just wanted to ask questions. And so right. that was instrumental in really saving time because before I would spend several hours a day just talking to prospective investors, but someone that's going to pay $400 just to talk to you. And they're pretty serious, right? Mm -hmm. I started that process where we would charge them just to talk. And I have that today. I don't get on the phone with anyone without charging a fee, but if they end up hiring us, we subtract that against the fee to retain us. And I want to come back again. What year was this The Economist wrote about you when you said you really started? 2005 when The Economist wrote about us. So would you end up eventually growing it all the way to as far as like size? Yeah. So we went from 50 properties in 2000, right before that 2004, let's say, or beginning of 2005 with maybe less than 50 properties. And at our peak, we had about 350 properties that we purchased. But you have to remember the number of transactions was many, many more than 350 purchases because many properties would flip several times. I'd have some apartments that in the span of 15 years has sold mm -hmm. five times. On the management side, Nothing changed with the way we rent out that property. But on the ownership side, that might have bought or sold three or four or five times. Did you make any money on the sale at all? Yeah. Okay. We did pretty quickly after the Economist article, we got our real estate license where we would make some commissions on that purchase. Our business philosophy didn't change. The client was not paying any more than they would pay any other realtor. But what happened was realtors would just basically start giving us some referral fees on any purchases. I was still using outside realtors to buy just because we were buying so many properties at the time. It would be impossible to try to source them all ourselves. So I see how you're making all those money. I mean, it seems like without risk, you're obviously a smart businessman even before you started getting into the real estate game. But to be able to pull like 30%, you're saying on the gross rentals as the management fee? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, And then like you're saying, all these properties selling too, you're able to make money off that. And your risk is pretty low if you're not buying any of these properties. Like Right, exactly. I basically set up kind of a hedge fund type yeah. model, mm -hmm. right? You charge a fee upfront rather than the percentage. We just charged a flat fee. We charged 30%. We're only charging that on money that we're making the client. Obviously, we're not renting out the property. We're not going to make any money other than, you know, we were charging, I think at the time, $150 a month to pay their bills. And you got to keep in mind, Austin, at the time, there was no online bill pay. I mean, Argentina's banking system even today is horrible, but at the time it was non-existent. Rather than being able to deposit like you would in any other country money into a bank account, I had to have all this money in cash in a safe. Right. We had seven employees that all they were doing was going around and they were paying bills every single day. It just was a much more complex process starting and operating a business there versus any other country in the world when you have no working banking system. What I was trying to say is like, you don't have any risk if just in the property risk per se, as a, and it makes it easier for you. No. It's very clean, right? It's very clean. But your risks are way different as far as like you're saying, because you have to, like, we don't even think about in the US, your risk is like keeping the money on site and having to deal with that. Exactly. That risk. And also, you know, keep in mind, they hired us right. to make sure everything went smoothly on a property purchase. We would charge them a flat fee. But as you alluded to, the real money wasn't in that flat fee. It was really in the management fees. 
up to get to a property purchase, there's so many unethical and shady characters, including sellers, is just there's a lot of work to get to that point where you close on a property. Now armored guards work well, but at the time you couldn't even use armored guards companies because they were the ones that were calling robbers. their friends to rob them. Believe it or not, me and one of my business associates, mostly we were carrying around money to property closings in a backpack or money belts. It was very, very, very surreal because a lot of the times the sellers would demand a close at their bank. So they didn't have to carry around money. That meant us bringing money to the closing. At the same time, you say there's not much risk for us on the operational side. There was tremendous risk for us just on an everyday buying properties. Part of that process of making sure everything goes smoothly up to the closing is if we got robbed on a $200,000 purchase, you know, I would have had to have made them whole. And so- That makes sense. That's the reason I was saying, like, I'm not saying be greedy or anything like that. It's to compare it to US. I know like the US, if you're managing apartment, like the property manager might get like 3% or something like that. So it's a totally different risk involvement. Like you were saying, you have to worry about if you got robbed, out of 200K, you're screwed. Right. And they trust you. So. Exactly. Not only on the property purchase, but also on their rental funds as well. We had to hold the rental proceeds in our safe as well. They wanted a distribution. You know, we typically didn't just disperse payments every quarter. Well, by the way, didn't you say your office did get robbed? It did. I mean, we had cameras everywhere and, and purposely I put our office in the same building as embassies and right next to a police station, but we still had two break-in attempts. Well, tell us about those because that's something we probably won't have to go through, hopefully, as a business owner. This is why it seems so fascinating is like having a company down here. It was very, very fascinating and and very, very stressful at the same time, but (laughs) I was right next to a police station, but still a lot of the police there are unethical and very corrupt as well, so you couldn't necessarily count on that. But I had cameras in every room. Not only did we have outside risks to robbers, but you had to worry about employees as well. At the time, we were dealing with a tremendous amount of cash, not only from buying properties, but also on rentals. We gave the rental guests a choice either to use their credit card and pay a surcharge or to bring cash and pay no surcharge. The majority of the rentals were being paid in cash. We had cameras in every room of our office. My office was located on two separate floors of a building. This go back to 2002 or 2003. It wasn't as common as it is today to have cameras everywhere. Well, can you tell us specifically about the break-in? Yeah, so we had a lot of, you know, as you can imagine, we had a lot of different alarm systems. The safe was behind, I think, three feet of cement. I think we did have our office broken into. And I think when they went to the safe, they figured out it's not something that they could do quickly. The alarms went off. And like I said, we're right next to a police station. The alarms are very, very loud and we get notified right away. Luckily, they didn't steal any money both times. They just broke in and then realized they couldn't because, okay, well, that's good. I thought they actually stole some money too. I mean, if you had- No, luckily to this day, knock on wood, I've never- Knock on cement. Yeah, knock on cement. I've never lost any funds or gotten robbed, but- It just got to a point when I started the business, I was young and single. And in the interim of living down there, you know, I got married and I had two kids that were born there in Buenos Aires. Probably my biggest bonehead move is I didn't sell. I got an unsolicited offer from a company that ended up getting acquired by Airbnb for, I think, 350 million last year. But they came around and they wanted to buy the company in 2007 before the big recession in the United States. And I loved the business. I loved everything about the business. I was making a lot of money and it didn't go through. You know, we had agreed, but we ended up not going through with that transaction. And I was okay with that. 
But then, you know, I had two kids. My oldest daughter was born in 2008 and the recession happened. And at that time, even I was working, I think 15, 16 hours a day. And so I did end up selling the company in 2010, the same company that Luxury Retreats that Airbnb bought. They ended up acquiring us. And my deal with them is I sold the management portion, but I kept the investment in the consulting company. To this day, I continue to help investors that are not only buying, but also that are selling properties in Argentina. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, Nine out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. So how old were you when you sold? I think you said it was 2010, end of 2010 when you ended up selling, but how old were you then? Yeah, I think I was 38 at the time I sold the company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was relatively young. Well, yeah. Well, do you mind if we pause that? That's what I was going to say next, because you keep saying that how much you worked, and it seems like you almost have to just to see how much you had done by the time you were 38. Were you ever getting burned out at all? I mean, as far as like, and having to deal with family in a foreign country, that seemed like that'd be a little bit difficult. So why don't you tell us about your personal life during this time? Yeah. So my personal life, moving down there to South America, you know, I was the eternal bachelor when I moved down there in 2003, you know, I was still quite young there was beautiful girls. And so I was juggling all this working, but I still wanted to have a personal life, but it didn't leave time for a lot of serious relationships. I ended up actually reconnecting with a girl who's now my wife that I had met two years earlier in Colombia. This three years to live type scenario, it truly changed my life because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have started this company in Argentina. I think we got engaged in 2006. And we got married in 2008. I had my first child in 2008. And it was hard to spend tremendous amounts of time with my daughter because I was kind of managing this big empire of different companies and different properties. And it's not like you can hit a pause button. I was working a tremendous number of hours. Right the next year, I had my son. I think my daughter was seven months old when we found out we were having my son. And so I had two kids back to back. That really changed my perspective. You have to know your limits, I think, not only as a kind of an entrepreneur and business person, but just as a human, right? You have to kind of know your limits. By 2009, when I had my son, I already knew that I couldn't continue to work 15, 16 hours a day. I was getting to the office probably no later than seven. And many times I would come home at 11 at night. And, you know, I'd come home and I'd work more because, you know, you have to remember, Austin, I had investors in every time zone. We had investors in Australia and London and Hong Kong and Canada and the United States. It was hard just to shut off. 
it was very hard. And once I commit to a client, I just felt obligated to give it everything I had. When we were saying when you left the other company is because you had seen all these guys who had kind of worked themselves to death. Exactly. It seemed like you were kind of redoing this again, even though you kind of moved to Argentina. That's exactly right. That's kind of what was the turning point. I was making a lot of money. I was building these companies that I was really proud of because there was a lot of Americans and there's a lot of foreigners that went to Argentina after the crash, but almost none of them built anything that was successful. No one that built companies that were cash cows and something that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and The Economist were writing about. I think what I was doing was really special, but at the same time, there was a personal cost. I was working a tremendous number of hours. We had a lot of employees, but at the same time, there's a lot of things I couldn't turn over to an employee. Things like property closing, you know, I was almost going to every single one. Property purchases, I was going out and evaluating them. There's no way you could do that without working at least 15 hours a day. And so the end of 2008, when I had my daughter, I said, you know, I should have sold in 2007, but basically gave notice to my clients. I thought that was a classy and ethical thing to do. I said to my clients, I'm giving you a year's notice that I do plan to sell the company the next year. So anyone that wants to exit and sell their property, you can. I just thought that was the fair thing to do, even though that killed valuation on a company when you're losing a lot of properties that you're managing. Many of them could stayed on, but right when I gave the notice, probably 25% of my clients said, yeah, if you're not there to manage it, I'm going to sell my property. As you mentioned, you know, the ironic thing is I said, I'm going to take this three years to live scenario. And I saw these people passing away, but I saw the other end, even though I was still relatively young in my thirties, there's no way that's sustainable where you could work that many hours a day having two kids. My plan was to sell and, you know, I'm from the United States. I'm American. I grew up in the United States and I don't think you can beat the lifestyle and just the safety and the tranquility and just the ease. Everything in South America is very difficult. Things in the United States, people can complain and bitch and moan, but things here work, right? Everything's mm. pretty clean. It's safe. You got Amazon. Yeah, you got Amazon. You know, all of that stuff works. And I said, this is the country that I want to raise my kids in. Even though I love Argentina, and my kids both are citizens. They have Argentine passports. This is the place that I wanted to raise them. And I did sell my company in 2010. And how much did you end up selling it for? I can't disclose that. We have a non-disclosure agreement with the company that bought it. That's fine. If I don't ask, then you know, it's worth a try. Yes. Could you have retired for life at that point? I mean, and not work anymore? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm someone personally, I don't think I could ever retire just because I love staying active. Yeah, it sounds like it. I told you about those three people that passed away early in life from working, but I didn't tell you that also as many or more people that I knew that passed away right after retirement. Mm -hmm. And you know, these were guys that were bringing in you know, probably 20 to $30 million a year for their company, oil executives. The ironic thing is these guys died on a beach doing nothing. And I think it was almost more stress for these guys, for their brains, not to be doing anything, sitting on vacation, doing nothing. So I think there's kind of a fine line between working too much and working too little. I think I'm one of those guys. I love staying active. I don't know if I could just completely retire. So when you say financially, could you have retired? And I continue to buy properties every year that I own the management company. What I think my investors loved about me was I wasn't telling people, hey, this is a great investment. You should be investing your money. Well, at any given time, I was the largest owner in my management company. You know, I had more properties than any other investor that we manage and continued to buy 
more properties just because it was a great investment. So could I retire on rental income? I guess your definition of retire is kind of subjective, right? Right. You know, I have three kids. My youngest is three. So I have, I, I still have a long haul before they're all through college and I like to stay mentally challenged. To this day, I take advisory roles. I'm on the board of directors of different companies. And I like to stay active, even if it's not my own company. Mm -hmm. I like to help other entrepreneurs. And something I'm really proud of, a company less than two years ago had me come on their advisory board. And within two years, I helped them sell for you know, eight figures, multiple million dollars to another company I introduced them to. You know, it gives me great joy to do things like that, mm -hmm. to stay mentally challenged and stay active business-wise as well. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you doing that and doing it through this interview as well. I don't know if like, if we should kind of stop it there, if that was your more your big exit and now are you more just in advisory roles and other companies? You want to briefly touch on that? As I mentioned, I sold the management company, but I kept the consulting and investment company. And so right. to this day, I still continue to help people purchase and sell properties in Buenos Aires. It's not as busy as before. Right. I don't take on every client that contacts me just because I have three kids now. I try to limit the amount of times I go to Buenos Aires, but I have a good team down there. And I think right now I get offered jobs all the time to run companies. But after I sold the company and I moved back to the United States, I started another company also in the real estate space. It's one of those things where I had a client and friend contact me and say, hey, I have this idea for a company and I want to do it with you. And we went to just chatting about the idea of doing it to a couple <laughs> short months after that, him quitting his job and me jumping into that to doing another startup. I did that in 2013. We started a residential real estate app. And by 2015, I had already sold it. That got acquired as well. That was kind of the next chapter in my life. I think after I sold Apartments B in Buenos Aires, I started that company here in San Diego and I had an office in Toronto that I was going back and forth to. And again, you know, we weren't looking to exit, but we got an offer to purchase that company. And so we did get acquired. That was 2015. So a couple years ago since then. And you know, now people say all the time, well, what's your next company that you're going to start up? And I say to them, I don't think I could start another company. The only reason why is that last startup as well, it was backbreaking. I mean, you read about these entrepreneurs that have these books with the 10 hour work week or Poor. things like that. And really they're garbage. I mean, I just know from experience starting different companies and being successful. I think the most successful entrepreneurs are the guys that do work the tremendous number of hours. It's very hard. I don't know any entrepreneur that built anything significant, meaningful that hasn't worked a tremendous number of hours. I always say there's no shortcuts to success. People kind of look at me even after I sold my first company and they say, wow, you know, you're young. I always say overnight success takes about 15 years. Mm -hmm. And that, that's about true. I mean, it takes about 10 or 15 years. You can't judge someone just by their age. And it was a long, long path of everything I built up. And I would say the reason I say I probably wouldn't do another startup is just, I know what it takes to do it right. And, mm -hmm. you know, that last startup as well, I was probably working 15 hours a day for two years. That's tough to do when you have kids. After I sold that one, I kind of told my wife, I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to still do consulting. I think my proudest achievement of everything that I've accomplished in my career, in my life, is being able to drop my kids off at school in the morning, pick them up at the end of the day, take them to tennis lessons. And I think that's more meaningful today than building up multi-million dollar companies. That means more to me than anything I've been able to achieve. 
Well, looking back on your journey, I appreciate you talking about the amount of hours to put in. Sometimes I think that gets over, people might read the four-hour work week and act like it. Yeah. Even if you're trying to work smart, which all of us are, honestly, but if you work like the long hours that you end up working, eventually you figure out how to work a little bit smarter doing those things. Do you want to touch a little bit more on that or, yeah, yeah, sure. or whatever else you think looking back at your story? Doing business today is much easier than it was when I started the company in Dallas. And even the company in Buenos Aires, you can utilize technology. But the reason why I think the four-hour workweek type books are garbage when you're starting a company is because the smart entrepreneurs, even if they can accomplish what they need to in four hours, the best ones are going to take the rest of the next 12 hours <laughs> because you can always do more when you're starting a company. As you know, I mean, you've started a company. There's no shortage of things to do, right? Yeah. There's always something that needs to get done. And I just don't feel like any entrepreneur that's not working a tremendous number of hours, there's always things that can get done. Even if I could have accomplished what I needed to in eight hours, I probably still would have worked another eight hours because I know what it took to succeed. And I make a list of the milestones that I think I want to achieve in that company. Six months, one year, two year, three year, four year, five year, 10 years. You always have to kind of think about that. otherwise there's no way that you can effectively measure your success. And in different companies, I've been way ahead of what the goal is on the paper, but projecting out to the 10-year is so good because even if you're way ahead, even if you're years ahead, it still gives you a list of, hey, look, here's where I say I want to be in 10 years. I think the best entrepreneurs and the best business owners and people that operate companies are always people that are mindful of that 10-year goal, but they're always giving themselves that goal of where they can get to, not where they need to get to in the short term. I'm one of those entrepreneurs where I always think about that short-term goal, but I'll always say, well, what could I be doing quicker or better to get to that 10-year goal? I know a tremendous number of business owners. And I think a lot of the guys that are successful, the ironic thing is all of those guys, all of the founders at Airbnb, you know, those guys used to call me probably every month or two. When they were starting out, I remember, you know, they were just going after nice properties. And we had one of the biggest cities in the world and we had all these luxury properties. And so I had those guys calling, just begging to list our properties on their website. And I saw what they did. I saw them from the beginning of when they started because I started before them. These are the type of guys that they were working their asses off. And I think even to this day, they probably are. What they've achieved in a relatively short amount of time is amazing. That's proof right there. Just even you saying that they're calling you every month back when you knew them before everyone else did, right? I mean, that's hard to do. It's amazing. I mean, it's interesting watching that journey from their very, very humble journey. I think they always raised some venture money, but when they were starting out, they were working smart where they would have you as a property owner list your listing. But then what they would do right away is their engineers figured out how to instantly push that to Craigslist. Anytime you made a property listing, it automatically was marketing that on Craigslist for free. I watched these guys from the beginning and just, I had my properties on Airbnb for a long time watching them work smarter and just watching them grow. But yeah, I always say back in the day, these guys used to be begging me to put my properties on their website. Mm -hmm. That was funny. Well, I was going to say too, looking back on your story, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that maybe we could learn now that we've gotten the full experience of you growing this real estate conglomerate in South America? Is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with today? I would say to your listeners that anything is possible. The biggest kind of hurdle I hear entrepreneurs and other companies that I'm starting, they'll maybe have raised some money and they'll say, well, I don't know how to do this or 
someone can do it better. And my feeling is you don't have to be an expert on anything and you can't teach someone else without doing it yourself. When I started Apartments BA, I did everything myself from making copies of keys to buying furniture to cleaning apartments to doing check-ins because it's hard to tell someone else what the level of expectation and it's hard to tell someone else how to do something without you fully being an expert at it yourself. I'm a guy that knew nothing about real estate to starting and owning the largest property management company in Argentina, in one of the biggest cities in the world. Anything can be learned. Nothing is impossible, but you got to work hard. You got to work smart, but never think that you have to be a subject matter in anything or you can't be successful at it. I'm living proof that common sense and hard work is anything's possible. And I think a lot of the kind of the most successful companies today, I think the founders would give you that same advice. A lot of these guys didn't know anything about the fields they're going into, but they've experienced tremendous success at building valuable and important companies by kind of following a common sense, hard work approach. Kind of looking back at your life, that's kind of what it seems like your story is based on even when you were trying to find doctors and place them in the right place, like you were using your common sense on how to do it and then putting in that many hours to figure out if it did make sense, right? Not overcomplicating things. Exactly. And that's like I say at the time, you know, when I started, I didn't know anything. I love technology, but I didn't know anything about building technology. And one of the companies, Fipio, that I started after I sold Apartments BA was building a residential real estate app, competing against the likes of Zillow and Trulia and Realtor.com. My business partner, he did. He made software for a living and he owned one of the biggest technology companies in Canada. But I didn't know anything about that. And I was the CEO and founder of that company. There was a lot of different moments when I said, I don't know anything about building software. I went back to the basics of kind of following the advice is when I started Buenos Aires is you don't have to know how to do it, but you have to follow common sense and see what do people want. If I can figure out what people want, then I can explain to someone how to build it. There was Zillow and Trulia and stuff, but the way people bought real estate was very simple is square feet, zip code, price, right? That you put in a search engine. Well, when I came back to the United States and 2011. I was amazed that it's largely the same way, right? You put in on a search engine, the zip code and price and number of rooms. And I thought, you know, there's a better way that's more important. We're not going to buy a house unless my wife likes the kitchen. Yet on every kind of site out there, you have to even get to the listing, then you got to go to the kitchen view, right? And on every picture, part of the basis of that company was show me houses with modern kitchens or show me houses with uh, contemporary living rooms. That was the basis of that company. And we experienced tremendous success pretty shortly after starting to create that. We launched in here in San Diego and we expanded to San Francisco, but we got acquired pretty quickly after starting because people could understand, companies could understand what we were doing. I think what's important too, even though that was kind of a real estate app, so it's kind of in real estate, but you're really talking about tech, but you really can bring anything that you had learned from before, whether again, was it placing doctors or being in real estate or being involved in technology, any industry, you can learn something and bring it to another industry, right? Exactly. It's not like you lost all that. You might not know all the specific terms or whatever for the technology app when you started, but that takes very little time to figure out. Exactly. 
as long as you understand the concepts of things you learned in your other industries, then you can bring them full circle. And I think that's what we try to do with the interviews and having all these different entrepreneurs on. And it's definitely cool to get a real estate perspective from you. So we really appreciate you coming on and sharing a good amount of time with us about how you're able to build such a big company. So thank you, Michael. Sure. No, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah. And if anyone wanted to reach out and say thank you to you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, they can email me. My email is mike at coinvestments.com, K-O-H investments.com. All right. Well, thanks again, Mike. Okay. Take care, Austin. YOLO and hola. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, then we would love for you to leave us a five-star review. It helps other potential listeners enjoy this fabulous show just like you. And it'll take less than 69 seconds to do it. I promise. And if you're looking for more episodes that are dealing with the real estate industry, then try out episode 15 with Jillian Hellman or episode 21 with Bill Lyons or episode 30 with Steve Wayne. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you next episode. Oh,